Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Friday the 14th of the 2nd. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? Very well, thank you, Gary. Very well. Alright, just a, a small note when we start with. After the last episode, we received a surprising uh, amount of emails and reaches uh, out. That's not the right phrase, but you get what I'm trying to say. From people about the vaccine thing, asking that we not stop talking about vaccinations and that they very much enjoyed the coverage of it. And perhaps I oversold that. We will, of course, still be talking about vaccines, possibly not as much, but we will absolutely be talking uh, about it. And in fact, we have a hilarious, not really vaccine, but vaccine-related story uh, today. And there was actually one thing, one of the emails that we were sent out mentioned something which is, is absolutely correct, but which I had not thought to, uh, I don't think we've mentioned before. And the point that one of the listeners made was that when the, the government says over 70s, that he thinks this is done because... It sort of sounds like the government is saying we've already done the over 90s and the over 80s and we absolutely absolutely have not done that. They just want to give a a very broad category and that absolutely is the case. When you look at the actual breakdown of the um, the groups in the country, we we have not um, we have not vaccinated the those above 70 at all. No, I in fact, I think we're only in the in the process of beginning the outreach to the uh, over 85s that are not already included in say care homes or hospitals so and after the over 85s then the over 80s then the over 75s and then the over 70s they'll be done by tranche yeah i think that from a pres- from a presentation point of view over 70s sounds like all the other groups well we've got the others but in fact obviously if you're over 85 you fit into the set the white the, the larger set of persons who are over 70. start with michael michael uh michael martin is having a bit of a mean girl moment he doesn't. He doesn't quite seem to have realised that you don't uh, make a big fuss about going to a party until you're sure you're actually going to be invited to the party. Uh, so the the annual going over to Washington and meeting the president. Oh yes. Yes, Miha Martin was very. Actually, I was going to say he was very strong and that he would continue to go over, but actually he was incredibly weak on it. It somehow became a a thing that Martin should not go to Washington. Um, because doing so was disrespectful to others who were under travel restrictions. And instead of just coming out and saying, that is a ridiculous point, going to Washington is not just handing over a bowl of shamrocks, it's not a holiday. It's a chance to actually meet the American president one-on-one. It's a chance to meet the people around them, to build contacts there. It is a diplomatic opportunity which significant amount of countries in the world would kill a not insubstantial amount of people to secure. There is obviously a, a, a fairly large amount of paddy, paddy whackery and nonsense talked about this and our special relationship and all that. However, the roots of this may go back to a time when the Irish-American vote was a far more cohesive and powerful thing. And if you could get the Irish-Americans to go one way, then that was going to be very good news for wherever you were going. So, I mean, one of the things they did was... You know, they said this was part of the, the pageantry of American politics. Back in a time when every other city had an Irish, when certainly in the north of the United States, had an Irish-American uh, mayor and police commissioner. However, whatever it was, it's, I don't know how many countries the size of Ireland have an opportunity every single year to have a meeting in the Oval Office with the president, to meet the cabinet, to meet the administration, to sit down, have lunch, and 
to have this kind of diplomatic connection it is it's a kind of a big deal and not that i think it will particularly under biden who has made a lot about out of his irishness i don't think it'll happen but you know you, 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 you one of the things about parties gary is you don't turn down invitations consistently to parties because there's a chance that people just say ah no he never comes we'll stop inviting him don't give them a precedent you just keep coming so they can't not let you come I also i don't i understood i i don't it's not that i massively cared about this but it does seem to me to be odd way to look at it now we have not been shall we say in a horrible negative negative we have not been uncritical of this government regarding the way it has handled effectively everything you know everything that's something but in this particular case it is not the same as Michal Martin announcing that he's going to take the he's going to take the government jet and he's going to fly to the Seychelles for uh, for five or six days with the wife and the kids because he's a bit tired and he feels like he needs a bit of sun. I mentioned the Seychelles because they have just announced that anybody who has a vaccine uh, COVID passport will be allowed to go to the Seychelles now without a without going into quarantine yeah i mean it's not like michael martin just decided he was going to have a 40-man house party for his birthday no i come on he's going to go over to washington dc which you know let's face it i mean in just in, in march is probably not going to be the most gorgeous place in the world washington in summer is the worst place i have ever been i have never <laughs> been so uncomfortable in my life it's it's awful, Michael. It's it's hot, but it's not just the heat. It's just... It's hard to describe how fucking terrible it is. Like, you would never voluntarily go there without reason. Which is why the city empties out during the summer. Yeah, no. It's spring. And I'm told spring in Washington can be quite pretty. But anyway, lads, come on. I mean, it, it's alright. Criticise them when they get there. But this is not... This is just... Dog in the, literally, it's dog in the manger. Well, I can't go anywhere, so you can't. So we should just all lock them up in their houses for crying out loud. When I said there are countries who would kill to get that option, I, I didn't mean that in any sort of overblown ways. There are many countries in the world who, if the end result was securing an annual meeting with the American president and his people, and then a, you know an informal chat and a chance to meet these people, they would legitimately kill people. If they knew they could secure it. And that's simply the truth of the matter. I don't mean that as any sort of... And I don't think we realise that. I don't think we realise how big a deal that is and how useful that can be. Now, of course, it's like any opportunity. You could go over and you could piss it away. Surely, yeah. It's an opportunity. It's a roll of the dice that most countries do not get. And But I think the problem here is this. Someone brought it up as an issue. And instead of just Martin responding forcefully and just going, that is an idiotic suggestion. It needs to be done for these reasons. This is worth something to us. You just got this sort of weak sort of, oh, well, you know, we'll consider it if we're, you know, we, you know, we don't want to offend anyone. And, you're like, and then, you know, then the blood is in the water. And then you're just like, okay, he can't handle Just keep piling on to him. It's surely the most obvious thing, and maybe it wouldn't have been successful. I would have said straight up. It's not Michal Martin going to Washington for a jolly. It's the Taoiseach of Ireland going to meet the Irish pre the President of the United States. That's what's happening here. And there's a fantastic opportunity, and one we shouldn't 
turn down we not an invitation we shouldn't snub it's not to, and to, to think of it as Michal Martin going to Washington is just wrong and wrong-headed and deliberately wrong and wrong-headed in most cases or else you're just being thick. Martin could have diffused this absolutely no effort. He just didn't. Strength. A, a, a strong, just a strong, tough, curt response would have knocked them back into their box. But he didn't. He said, well, we don't want to be insensitive to people and it's hard. None. Well, we'll look at it and then you give in. And now you just look ridiculous. Because now, on the other hand, you go to the other people piling on saying, why the hell didn't you go? Yeah, but then he eventually starts to come out with more about how, you know, he'll, he'll, you know, he'll definitely go if invited. And, and then it turns out that the White House has to say that they don't think it'll go. There'll be something, but they don't think it'll go ahead. And Martin has to sort of stand there and go, oh, always looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, because now, the White House isn't, who knows what's going on there, but one imagines it's a principle in Varakian politics. You, you, you don't ask somebody if you know the answer is going to be no. And if they thought that they were going to get the answer no, then they're not going to invite them. So there's, there's still some sort of back and forth there about, whether or not he will actually get invited over. You think, Michael, before you said anything, because of the year that's in it, you would have reached out to the Americans and said, right, look, is anything going ahead? Because if nothing is going ahead, yeah, well, then that's a different situation. And maybe we can play that to our advantage here by you know, making it look like we're taking one for the team. That's the sort of time when having informal connections, Michael, to you know the entire administration and the people around Biden might have been super useful. That would have been handy, but you you just do it quietly, and you do it. But the the capacity of this government, or and not just this government, governments all over Europe, shall we say, to look into the future and the future being anywhere after longer than tomorrow's lunch seems to be fairly small. I um I I was looking through you know as you do, Michael, because you know when you have free time, this is what you spend it on. Uh, the parliamentary questions in the dark. Yes. And one went through on, on Wednesday, and I didn't cop it on Wednesday, it was Thursday before I saw it, but uh, Darren O'Rourke uh, asked the asked Simon Coveney, as the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and whatever dozen other titles they've tacked on, yeah. um, you know, if you've spoken to Chuck Schumer. Now, Chuck Schumer is the US Senate Majority Leader. He is an exceptionally important figure in American politics due to that. Oh, yeah, he's big swinging dick now. Yeah, 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 he's finally got it. And, um, you know, and so Darren asked, you know, have you talked to him and will you make a statement on what you talked to him about? Simon Coveney comes forward and says, you know, building relationships with the US is an absolute priority and, you know, we've, we've, we've always ensured our relationship is valued and strengthened. And then has to say, while I have not spoken directly to the US Senate team, Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, we engage regularly with elected representatives cr- from across the aisle in Congress. Now, Michael, the idea that the Irish Foreign Minister hasn't bothered to fucking call the new US Senate Majority Leader is um, odd, I would say. In fact, the fact that we didn't have a call with him the day after he became the Majority Leader is um, actually kind of shocking. Well, you know, he had to go to Turkey. Well, he did have to go to Turkey because, you know, what would the... What would Simon Coveney be doing if not... 
actually, no, that's an unfair joke to Simon Coveney about genocide, and I'm not going to make it, Michael. <laughs> I am going to be no. the bigger man. For once, for once, for once on TRSI, I will, I, I will not. So here's the thing. Either Coveney didn't try, or he tried and he got blown off. Now, with the amount Biden is playing up the Irish-American thing, and knowing what we know about Chuck Schumer... I would say the chance if if Coveney tried, he wouldn't get blown off. No. So that would kind of indicate that Coveney hasn't tried. Of course he wouldn't get blown off. If nothing else, Chuck Schumer right now is loving the fact that diplomats and ministers and other and people of importance from all over the developed and undeveloped worlds are ringing him up to say, well done, Chuck. Because he's been waiting for this opportunity for quite some time. He's had to be there while McConnell has been swanning around. Yeah. He's had years cocaine behind Cocaine Mitch. Mitch, yeah. And now he gets he gets the people reaching out because he's important. And Chuck Schumer has been I mean, he has been a senator for at least twenty years. So more than likely you would have expected Simon Coveney to have talked to him before. Over the last couple of years, because even before he was majority leader, he was the head still leading the Democrats in the Senate. He was an important figure then. He, he, yeah, he was. He was, head, he was a minority. He was a minority leader in the Senate, which is, is in itself an important role. To be so, and for those who are kind of going, why does this matter? It matters because, well, firstly, it's, it's a large part of the job of the Minister for Foreign Affairs is to have relationships with these people and contacts with these people that you can then later use to Ireland's advantage. And part of that requires you to have talked to them at some point. And it really helps if you have a reason to talk to them, such as congratulating them on their appointment. Whereas it's kind of like if someone asks you, will you ring them and you forget and you mean to ring them back. But then, you know, a week or two goes by and it starts to look bad if you ring them because there's a sort of why didn't you ring me earlier yeah 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 so it's entirely possible we, we may have not only failed to talk to chuck schumer but offended chuck schumer which is fantastic work well i have to hope that chuck is a busier and a bigger man than that but yes i'd say if the if there is embarrassment it's probably more on the more on the side of the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs than it is with Chuck, but... But you, I, I, I would have thought that Simon would have called, you know, if he was talking to Chuck, just, you know, is this going ahead? What's Do you know what's happening with it? Or, sorry, we, we get this thing. Martin has this back and forth, eventually starts coming out very strong on it, too late. And then the press just contacts the White House and asks him, is this actually going ahead? And you look like a fucking idiot. It's just... It's... It's a, maybe not a big deal. I think it is actually a bigger deal in, in a way than just going to a, a thing because it, the, the future attitude of the American administration to, for example, retained profits abroad, capital gains tax at home, uh, issues around multinationals, all these things, they're very, very, very big news for the Irish. And... We want to get our tuppence in early. We want to impress on them the importance that these things have for us. And if we have a guy who is sort of supposedly paddy friendly or to say, well, you know, if you are going to do anything, let's try and mitigate the effects it has on us. Or, or at the very least, if get a sense of what they're going to do so that we can try and maybe react, change the circumstances so that the thing, if, if something is coming down the pipeline, we can mitigate, we can mitigate the worst effects of that. But it's just, 
more kind of flabbiness from Michal, isn't it? Or is it just, am I might be unfair, is this an impression I have which is being generated by a, a occasionally hostile media that Michal just seems to have lost the capacity to make a single firm decision and stick to it? Or just that everything has to be reflected on, pondered on, go to a committee, be focus grouped, then discussed, then go to cabinet, and then we'll have five days reflection before we wait. And then discover actually we don't have to make a decision anyway because the time has run out and the decision has been made for us. You see this in comedy sketches. Someone goes to solve a problem, gets engrossed in their work, come, gets the solution, comes running back to the uh, to the meeting room with the solution, you know, the paper in his hand. And everyone has already gone home and has moved on to something else. And a janitor will walk by going, are you still here? Yeah. It's kind of that. It's sort of all of his responses are delayed to everything. I did enjoy the people complaining that Sinn Féin were saying he shouldn't go. And saying if Sinn Féin were in power, they would absolutely not be saying that the Taoiseach shouldn't go. You sort of go, well, <laughs> yes, no, that, that's absolutely true. That's... But let me introduce you to the co- the concept of an opposition. The job of the opposition is to oppose. I mean, this is the Fianna Fáil used to understand extremely well, and that's why they were successful. And that fits into a broader area, which we will refer to as politics. Okay, politics. Doing politics. Yes, politics as a trade and as a craft. And to be honest, the most interesting thing I thought about this was Coveney saying that he hadn't talked to Schumer. Because that's odd. I'd be very interested to see what happened there. Maybe he's just busy. Simon. Maybe Simon is busy. What's he busy doing? He can't go anywhere. I mean, he can. He can go go to Turkey, but, you know, he can't go very many places these days. Michael, there are many despotic regimes in the world who need our minister to be there to tell them that they should be members of the EU. Or, you know, I mean, simply ignoring the emails I keep sending them about Chinese genocide, Michael, that must take up a significant portion of his mental space. I feel this is getting personal now, Gary. You feel rejected. Uh, terribly so. I feel I may have been blacklisted. I think once you once a certain percentage of the emails you send to the Department of Foreign Affairs reference what is our stance on genocide, I think they just start going, no, we're not. We're just not dealing with this. You think your, your, your emails are now being automatically redire- redirected into the spam filter? No, I, I think they're being automatically directed to a printer which has a shredder placed strategically underneath it. Simply because deleting them automatically would not give the proper impression. Yeah. On other, um, as we're talking about Fine Gael and just weird stuff, did you see Neil Richmond talking about the Sputnik vaccine? I did. I didn't quite know what he meant. There was a, a okay, I don't know if you want to explain. He was, he was being, he, what, what, what television program was he on? These late night politics things. And he was being asked, uh, the context seems to be, was about being, about the possibility of sourcing uh, vaccines elsewhere and the context of the, you know, the, the Russians. And, and Neil has this thing about going outside the European procurement service. So Louise O'Reilly, who's the Sinn Féin TD, was there and she was talking about it. And he did not take the line of questioning very well. And he was saying that, you know, only a small European country had gone outside this to get the the Sputnik vaccine, which is, I think, rather um, rather deliberately ignoring Germany going out to get additional, you know, tens of millions of vaccines, but not the Sputnik vaccine. Rather, at the very best, you could call it, Gary, disingenuous. 
and um, then he starts going, and you know they. He's, he's said, you know, small European country because we are, you know, a Goliath in population and size, Michael. And had gotten the Sputnik vaccine. It was untested. It was unregulated. Uh, then he said they've ran out of it and it didn't work, which are two not contradictory. But if why would you run out of it if it didn't work? Surely you'd just stop using it. And he does this finger pointing thing at Louise O'Reilly as well. And it comes across quite aggressive but the problem there is that it hasn't been proven not to work and hungry is is still uh is still vaccinating people with it so i I don't know what he's talking about it's hard to understand sometimes syntax is is the enemy of of the speaker it's hard to understand is he saying that going outside of the eu didn't work because the hungarians were out uh, maybe they didn't get a delivery of what we. They got. They bought two two million. They took a contract for two million doses. Now they certainly haven't run out of two. They haven't gone through two million doses yet in Hungary. Now I doubt that they got a delivery of two million doses. They wouldn't have done because it wouldn't make any sense. They wouldn't be able to. I mean, they're not English. They wouldn't be able to get that many doses out in a couple of weeks. However. They don't seem to have stopped vaccinating. The Russian virus data was published in a peer-reviewed article in The Lancet and reports efficacy of over 91%. Um, I I read, Gary, unless I'm much mistaken, that the Germans are actually building a factory in Germany for the Russians to produce this vaccine. So I'm not quite sure what he means by that. It, it was an odd thing. Neil is the man who said that when the discussion was going on about whether or not the United Kingdom, should it find itself with surplus vaccines, might offer the Irish government some vaccines, said while the offer was very nice, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, uh, I don't know what the phrase, necessary, it wouldn't be acceptable because... Unlikely to be realised. That's exactly right. And we had commented that that's very different from saying they won't offer. It's unlikely to be realised because Ireland is, with, is within the European purchasing agreement. I thought it's a very odd way of saying unlikely to be realised. You know, I think, you know, you mentioned uh, now. Other than the fact that the Danes have actually gone, the, the Cypriots were reported at least of having uh, gone to the Israelis to see because the Cypriots have quite good relationships with the Israelis. See what the Israelis, the Israelis could do something for them. Well, the Israelis, the Israelis did do something for them. They leaked it to the press. <laughs> yeah, they did that for them. Uh, it was has been reported in the last week that Malta also have gone ahead and uh, bought an extra eight hundred thousand uh, doses from Pfizer on their own bat. As you said, the Germans uh, also back. Some time ago, and now it's it's interesting to know just to do the timeline on this. And I know we're getting back in uh, because actually this would connect into that funny story that I was we mentioned before. But as the, in Germany, there was already public disquiet about the sufficiency of the numbers of doses that had been bought back in at the end of August, because. We we know that they went ahead and got an extra thirty an extra thirty million doses from BioNTech, which is the the German vaccine produced with Pfizer. But they also got another twenty. They got a deal for another twenty million doses with CureVac, 
which I think is a German company. I'm not certain about it. But another twist, which was again off their own bat. So the idea that Hungary is the only person doing this is just a little bit disingenuous, at, 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 to say the very least. So I don't know why it's not working. It's Yeah, I, I, I think I read that as the vaccine is not working. But it could have been a, a wider point about it. I think the, the more immediate problem here is that he looks like a prick when he's saying it. And it's also um, either incorrect or ambiguous enough to be widely seen and passed around as incorrect. And like, you can be as ignorant as you want in politics, if you're right. But if you start being ignorant and wrong, like Michael McDowell. I have seen Michael McDowell do things to other politicians that would be frowned upon in a polite society. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't beloved. Do you remember the famous double debate where they had the leaders, they had two leaders debates, so it was the leaders of the big parties and then those leaders of the little parties. And uh, you had me all, uh, Michael McDowell was there as the leader, I suppose the leader of the PDs at the time, and in one one glorious sentence, uh, you hold it, you had, so there you have it folks, the left, the far left and the left behind. Uh, he was, he, but, then he, but the thing was, there was a sense that McDowell had something behind him to back it up. Yeah, whereas Richmond is, um, and he's talking a lot about vaccines lately, and I don't think it's, um, I, I, I don't think it's helpful. Although I, I kind of, I think he may have put my back up slightly with his um, leave.eu thing, where leave.eu, leave.eu, where the, yeah. the British group, and in order to keep that website up, when Britain left the EU, they needed to have an EU address, and Richmond cooked up a fuss about it and, you know, said we don't need their sort here, basically. Something that would be kind of considered vaguely xenophobic, I would have thought. Yeah, they, they had set up, registered registered an office in Waterford or something, wasn't it, in order to have an, a, a base within the EU to keep the EU uh, address. Yeah, so Richmond, I think, wrote to a couple of the different organisations that would oversee that sort of thing, saying he wanted this investigated and, you know, we've got to pushback against this kind of hate and i think the website was taken down and um he was regardless of whether or not he was responsible he was sort of crowing about it and sort of a i don't find that impressive richmond no it was nasty and it was really small-minded as well wasn't it? it was just petty yeah it was a sort of you know you took britain away from me how dare you it's like a jilted lover who feels you've ruined their life but all they can think of doing is like sticking some chewing gum to your house. <laughs> It'll take valuable seconds of your life to scrape that off. I, I, don't, I don't even know. Maybe I, I, I don't even know if he was that he was that particularly attached to the United Kingdom in the great fraternal organization of European nations. I think more there was more a sense that somehow Britain's leaving had been an act of disrespect to the great love and also there was that terrible possibility that they might give some other people the wrong idea shit you can't actually leave i didn't know that lads any chance what do you think you know you don't want you don't want the, the great unwashed to start thinking the wrong idea and getting the and the brits maybe gave a lot of people the wrong idea so that had to be but just the act of it it was it was it, uh, he is the finnegale spoke european spokesman and Finnegale has a, an oddly intimate, almost 
religious attachment to the European Union, which for years a friend of mine used to explain is that it was like for them it was an odd kind of replacement for power because they could the leader Finnegan as being a member of the popular party could go to have be with the you know the chancellor and whatever and they and we said this before they they could sit with the great and the good of the, of the powerful of Europe and pretend that they were important <laughs> because they were in the popular party which is Europe's largest largest party you know largest grouping I feel if all a bit like some odd typhoid Mary would go from one group to the other and wait for it to collapse around it until it ended up in the liberal group, which is the oddest. I don't know. Maybe that's actually what's happening. Maybe Michal is remaking Fianna Fáil in, in, the, in, the, in the model of the Europe, sort of the, the Dutch Liberal Party. Maybe though. We just never knew it. He's going on and on. I, I don't know. He'd be better off just... Leave us. He's oddly quiet. Uh, he considering it was such a big European deal. Uh, the day that they invoked Article Sixty. Yeah, Michael. I I don't think you find that odd at all. Do you not? That <laughs> I'm using odd in a disingenuous, in fact, in dishonest way. Here's here's a here's a tweet from Richmond. He says, uh, "For those wondering, the leave.eu domain name is still suspended, and it seems this odious Brexit group have given up the ghost." on their Waterford brass-plating efforts, still spreading their bile on social media, but their web traffic should take a big hit. There's two points there. One, why do you care if leave.au stays up, if it has no interest in Ireland? It's a website. Two, I have a feeling, Michael, and this is just a generalised feeling, that the Fine Gael European Affairs spokesperson should be very careful about what they say about brass-plating and organizations and companies brass plating themselves into ireland i would just be careful about that area you're not suggesting gary that there are companies and or organizations in ireland practicing brass plating are you michael at this point i wouldn't be surprised if there's a small autonomous country in ireland practicing (laughs) brass plating somewhere between somewhere between temple bar and the ifsc perhaps i mean you know just a square kilometre of land that has a population of 17 million people. <laughs> and for tax purposes is a sandwich shop. Something like that. For all we know, Finland could be in Glondalkin. It's like the joke about Liechtenstein that there were more people, or there were more companies registered there than there were citizens. And having been to Liechtenstein, I could absolutely believe it. But it looks very pretty. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go there the day they set the Alps on fire. It's spectacular. I was looking at the best way to get there from from flying into uh, Milan or to Verona. You have to change the train three times and go through Chur. It's a nightmare. If you if you go there from, from Switzerland itself, you take a train from Switzerland, it goes through Liechtenstein, out the other side, you get off and you get a bus back into the country. <laughs> I like that. There's a passport to Piblico. There's a kind of an Eden, uh, one of those Ealing comedies feeling to that kind of thing. Oh, we're in Liechtenstein. We're leaving Liechtenstein. Am I on the wrong train? Oh, actually, since we're in this mode, I, 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 shall we, uh, I, we're talking about this before, comment and uh, European things and German things or whatever. Um, I, I was talking to, uh, for another platform, I was having an, in, an, an interview with a friend, uh, 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 and, and a German lady who is um, very involved in the CDU in Hesse, 
and I was just asking on curiosity wasn't to do with the subject of the conversation we were having, but what the situation in Germany was where the people very annoyed about it. And she would say, oh, people were fucking livid about it. And she had some very choice things to say about Ursula and the fact that Ursula managed to get out of a scandal which was just about to completely engulf her before she managed to get out into out to Europe. I assume this was the Defence Forces procurement? Yeah, which apparently was going towards places which really wasn't, weren't places Ursula wanted to be. And so I said, oh, so that's nice. Somebody was deemed so that the only thing they could, she could do to escape complete destruction of her political career was to become the, the head of the, the commission running the whole of the EU. But that's, that's reassuring. Wasn't it? Wasn't, okay, so there were the defence procurement issue, wasn't it that um, her ministry had awarded millions upon millions in contracts yeah. to consultants? And there was a question of whether or not there was a, um, what was the phrase, network of informal personal connections behind those deals. It all seemed very friendly, apparently. Very chubby indeed. And I believe there was a there was a formal investigative committee of the German parliament, which is like a tribunal if a tribunal was designed to find out anything and we had perjury laws. And apparently, Gary, it's not over yet, by the way. Oh, really? New, news, there may be news still to come there. Anyway. Because that started like two years ago. Yeah, yeah. She said, we're chatting away, and she said, and of course there's this thing about the Pfizer doses which, of course, is causing terrible problems. The government is very embarrassed about this. And I said, what story about the Pfizer doses? She said, oh, but you know the story about the Pfizer doses. I said, no. She said, you remember when it was announced? And I'm sure the, the, the listeners will remember this because it was caused. We, we mentioned it here, in fact. And we said it was a cause of good news that the Pfizer dose, it, was, it had been announced that you could now get six doses rather than the expected five doses out of the Pfizer, the ampules. Uh, where you have to take them out. The, the, the thing comes and you have to dilute it and then you take the syringe out and you create the individual doses. Now, actually, technically, technically speaking, apparently, Gary, in a very technical sense, there is enough for seven doses, but that's not regarded as being in any way practicable. And it was it was believed that five was the practical. Then you remember that it came out that the FDA in the United States and the EMA in, in Europe said, that since people have been saying that we're leaving stuff behind, that it would be okay to get six doses. And therefore, if you remember, Gary, there was lots of, oh, that's great. <laughs> Extra doses, you know. We'll have more vaccines. But no, Gary, no. What was the reaction of Pfizer to this? The reaction of Pfizer was, oh, hold on now, lads. Uh, we don't sell ampules. We sell doses. So if there's six doses in that, you're paying for six doses in that. You're not paying for five doses and getting the one, buy five, get one free. So all of the numbers now have to be revised. And the Germans go, no, 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 but but, but it was five. It was five and now we've just get, no. And this, the, <laughs> the European contract is, they said, look at the European contract. Look at what we sold you. And they had gone back and looked at the contract, and it does, in fact, say doses. So now <laughs> Pfizer are saying, you have said that this is a six dose. So, you know, when we thought we had 300 doses, had turned, 300 million had turned, had turned it to 360 million? That didn't happen. 
And you know that extra 70, what was it, 75 million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the 75 million was announced during the AstraZeneca thing when, you know, bad news for Europe, we needed good news. Pfizer comes out and goes, actually, you'll get an additional 75 million doses. But uh, looking at this piece of news, that appears to be not, uh, not quite the full story. Apparently not. That what we thought were 300 million that would go into 360 million wasn't actually. So the extra 75 million, it, 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 put it this way, the, the revised numbers are going to have to come all the way back down again. And if we, and while Pfizer have actually, to some extent, bumped up their production, and some of the numbers that were based on, we can now provide extra X, hundreds of millions of extra doses were not based on their extra production but possibly on the ex- the discovery of the sec- of the, the the mysterious sixth dose in the the ampule and if we want extra doses we're going to have to pay for them all because Pfizer is not like AstraZeneca which is selling basically at cost to anybody uh, who wants it anybody who has contracts with it for the period of the first year, even two of the pandemic, well, Pfizer selling, it's a business. Yeah, it's Pfizer's 12 euro a dose. So the thing is, so it, the German are going mad, but Pfizer are saying no, they're sticking to it. And apparently the belief is that the contract doesn't say doses and the Europeans have, in a sense, shot themselves by announcing it's a six doser rather than a five doser. Now, the kicker is this, well, even the whole thing is good, but there is a belief, now I, I have tried to find anything about it, I don't know if this is true, and I suspect that it may not be true, but there is a, there is a word going around Germany that the, the, the deal which was done, obviously Pfizer was done, in, under, done was, uh, the contract was drafted in Brussels by the same people that drafted the AstraZeneca deal, of course, with the same care and attention they paid to the language there. But there is a belief going around Germany that the, the English have a different contract <laughs> no, I suspect that that's not actually true. But I've tried to find any confirmation. I've found nothing about. That, I, I would suspect that it is it is absolutely true, Michael. <laughs> uh, I would suspect they have done exactly what happened with uh, AstraZeneca, where the European Union had to effectively has signed something which is kind of wishy washy. And uh, the British, from what we've heard and from asking around, have signed something which is no pretty dead on as to you will do this and you will do it in this time frame. So on the on whether or not they put uh, doses instead of vials in the contract, we don't have the Pfizer uh, contract, but I have the AstraZeneca contract in front of me and presumably they are the same. So... This contract says 300 million doses of the vaccine. There's no mention of vials in the contract. It is all doses. So the interesting thing there is that Pfizer, when they thought, um, when they got this originally, they would have thought we need to make 60 million vials to hit 300 million. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And then when they come out and go, oh, we've got an additional 75 million. The interesting thing is that, um, if you're getting six doses per uh, vial, 60 million uh, vials, which is what they would have designed their production to hit because that was the deal they had with the EU, would give you 360 million doses. Which is to say that if Pfizer were to simply do what they had originally thought they were doing, they would only actually need to find an additional 15 million doses. 
And so I would suspect <laughs> that um, part of this is basically the EU going to Pfizer and going, look, lads, we're in a bit of a hole. We just really need a good news story. And uh, don't make it 60, because if it's 60, that's up it slightly. And for another 15 million, that's only another two and a bit million capsules, because there's six by two by whatever, by, like, you get there anyway. So, <laughs> anyway, I, I just enjoyed that. I thought, because the other thing about the Gary, it was reported in one story on the RTE website on the, what, the 27th of January, something like that? Yeah, I, I had a check for this, because I... I thought we had mentioned it, but I didn't see it on Irish media, but I did find a single RTE story that brought it up. Now, that was um, that went up on the 27th of January, and that mentioned that there were issues and that European countries were demanding explanations and Pfizer hadn't done anything at that stage. Um, but Pfizer was already making the point that actually your deal is for, for doses. Now, the interesting thing about that, Michael, would have been that if um, we may have actually lost doses due to this, because yes. if originally Europe was only taking five and then changed to six, Pfizer could have simply said, well, you know, we, we've been delivering the same volume to you consistently. What you do yeah, with yeah. it is your own business. But if you're saying it's six, then it's always been six because we haven't changed the quantities. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing about well, another and another thing about this is that's causing hoo ha in Germany is to say that they should never have announced that it was actually a six doser anyway, because they say that while it is theoretically possible to do that, there are two problems. One problem is, in order to successfully extract six doses, you need a very specific kind of syringe. Which it has, so it, I don't really, I, I'm not an expert in syringes, Gary. It's years since I was an intravenous drug user. But there is apparently a particular kind of syringe which has a very small gap in it, which means that when you draw it, there's a much, the, the reservoir is much smaller, so it's much more accurate and you can get the six out. But if you, if you don't have those syringes, you can't do it. And there's a shortage of those syringes, so this is a problem. The second problem is that simply in the process of doing the dilution or doing that people spill things and they break things and they lose and it's just not practicable a lot of people in, in the in the health services in Germany are saying is this is this was never going to be particularly practicable anyway and they should never have got into this in the first place and it was just a question this was just a way of manipulating numbers to make it look like we had more actual doses than we really did and now they've shot us all in the foot because instead of shall we say not that the Germans would ever have done this, but other countries might have said, "You know, on the QT, listen, if you can get six doses out, you can t you get you can you can do it." But actually, if it, realistically, you're only going to get five. Yeah, see, that's that's the sort of thing that the EU is very bad at, uh, but that Ireland is traditionally very good at of going. Well, officially, it is this, and if Pfizer ask, absolutely this. Yeah. But unofficially, get everything you can. Do what you can. Anyway, that's apparently this is a whole big, a big brouhaha in Germany. The Germans it got are engaging apparently in horrible bouts of vaccination nationalism. Gary, lots of them are saying we can't, in, we can't bloody well vaccinate our own people, and we're sending perfectly good German vaccines abroad. Oh, it's it's all turned very nasty. And Although, might, you know, maybe they do need to send some abroad to their closest neighbour. Here, Austria has been terribly hurt hit. Well, it must have been, Gary, because in one of the oddest... Did you see... You didn't happen to see the list of countries 
that to have been specifically uh, designated for requiring the quarantine. Michael, that wouldn't happen to be the list that is looks like it was created and then someone went, oh shit, every country on this is in Africa. Pick a European one at random. Except the Seychelles. Is the Seychelles technically in Africa or in... It may actually be in Africa technically or in India. I'm not sure. It's in between. But every other country is continental Africa. And it looked really like, oh God, they're just picking on the Africans. And then the only other country after Angola, Austria. And it just sticks out like this sort of thing. What the hell are the Austrians doing? I don't know. Unless, is it possible that they're afraid... The Austrians are going to open the ski lifts and everybody's going to go to Austria to ski and bring back Austrian co- I don't know. But it does have a look of, oh, Jesus, lads, that looks racist. Let's pick a country that makes it look less racist. So I mean, if you think of making things less racist, Austria is the obvious choice because nobody would associate racism with Austria. And Germany did just close its borders with Austria and Czechoslovakia. So, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help thinking that that's something I'm sure the Czechs and the Austrians had happened a long, long time ago. <laughs> Usually it's the other way around, Gary, the Austrians and the Czechs closing their borders with the Germans and, and then discovering that that didn't really do a whole lot. No, no. If the Germans want to come to the party, they're coming to the party. Sorry, the Germans have closed the borders with Austria and Czechoslovakia, Czechs and the Czech Republic, haven't they? That's brilliant. <laughs> Honest to God, that is... You couldn't make it up. <laughs> so they have closed their borders with the Sudetenland. <laughs> no more Anschluss for Austria. No, that's not funny, Gary. We shouldn't be talking about the war. It's a long time ago. And, you know... <laughs> You're right, Michael. We shouldn't do it. I think we'll need to come together and agree never again. Never again. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Jeez, what was What about Belgium? Has the Belgian border been looked at recently? Schleswig-Holstein. If I was a Dane living in Schleswig-Holstein, I would be worried. I would love to see the the German ministry close the borders because there's too many French tourists coming up. <laughs> coming up into the Rhineland, maybe. The French did do a lot of tourism around the Rhineland some time ago. So... This is very, no, this is all very bad and unnecessary. At a time when we need to come together in fraternal agreement and beat the COVID, the yellow peril. The the, the issue, I think, with, with Austria, actually, is that there is a large, uh, a large amount of their cases are the South African and Brazilian mutations. Okay. And the British. So Germans want to keep that out. As opposed to the Irish government, who went, God, it's a, it's a terrible new strain in Britain. But it would be unfair to stop people from Britain coming to Ireland for Christmas. And it would be unfair for people coming from South Africa going to Britain to not go through Dublin, which is causing the Brits quite a bit of concern. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's all fun and games when you're, uh, when you're sowing, Michael. But then when you have to reap it. On the other hand, it does make you kind of wonder what the Austrians are at. That the Brazilian, South African and British all happen to be in Austria at the same time. What are the Austrians doing? Is it ball season? It is, uh, let's see, it's carnival. Uh, let's see, today is 14th. Carnival starts Monday, Monday, Tuesday. No, today, actually, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, there'll be carnival. 
because uh, you have well, Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday. Of course, for any of those who haven't been able to get to Actually, Carnival. Actually, yeah, no, it is. It's 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 the height of ball season. Actually, I think it's coming to the end of, of the ball season. Well, it's Carnival. It's Carnival in Austria as well. Carnival is quite a big thing. For those who haven't been able to book their Carnival in time, don't worry. Carnival in Milan only starts on Wednesday and finishes on Saturday. So you can get out to the Milan Carnival late. However... Vienna's ball season is definitely something you should you should go for. It's it's great fun. I don't know how, what would it look like in the great ballroom, a socially distant waltz. I mean, maybe the dance itself, but you wouldn't be able to get through the quadrille socially distanced. No, no, no. that's not not going to happen. I like the idea of the Austrians destroying their own country due to COVID nineteen because they refuse not to have dances. Like, and a dance without a quadrille is not a dance at all, Michael. Yeah, you know what? That if you're gonna, if that's the hill you want to die on, <laughs> waltzing, we will, we will, you will take this waltz from my cold dead hand. I mean, Michael, it is definitely an evolution because historically the Austrians have preferred other people die on hills for them. This is this is true. This is true. Very many multi multi ethnic hills indeed. In uh, it was very progressive. Great. Yeah, very progressive indeed. So just to um, just to close, I just wanted to mention something so you're aware of it. The Citizens' Assembly, similar to the Constitutional Convention before it, and I had thought uh, Citizens' Assembly last year, is now um, looking at whether or not women have a place in the home, Michael, and whether or not the Irish state should recognise that home or that place. And um, it's, it's being led by uh, Catherine Day, who you may remember as a person who wrote a um, wonderful solution to Ireland's homelessness and refugee programs that was really well received until it went to the Department of Finance and they pretty much just started screaming. Yeah, I, I, I think it was two days before the ambulances stopped turning up at the Department of Finance as they, 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 they helped one stroke and cardiac victim after another out clutching a copy of her report. Yeah, what was it? it? Was free houses for everyone? Free houses for everyone. Well, free houses for everyone who was a refugee or an asylum seeker. Yeah. So what? What was it? Is it, if if you came in and you were an asylum seeker, you would be have to be given your own home and um, not like an not like any sort of communal thing. You'd have to be given your own home. And um, yeah, then it got to the Department of uh, of Finance, and I don't think the Department of Housing was terribly happy about it either. Do you know what, Gary? I heard rumours that people who'd been on the housing list for seven years in uh, Finglas weren't that happy either. Which just goes to show sometimes, Gary, there's a lack of solidarity and just basic humanity with people, which is disappointing. You think, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a, a warm and welcoming people, but sometimes that basic selfishness of human nature comes out in that ugly way. Just, it, you know, it's saddening, but there you go. Uh, obviously, I. I absolutely agreed with the, the document. I thought it was quite right. Yeah, particularly the part where they said that if you got leave to remain and you were in private rental accommodation, that you should be taken out of that and given your own home immediately. Immediately? Mm. Yes, very good. Anyway, she's obviously, she's established her credentials as a wise and, and humane person. I mean, or as a lunatic, but a very highly credentialed lunatic. Oh, very highly. Very, very highly credentialed, Dr. Catherine Day. But uh, no, it's only started now anyway, but I just wanted to um, I just wanted to talk about the, the opening 
that Catherine Day had given it because Catherine Day is, you know, the impartial advisor or you know, runner of this. She's not meant to get involved. She's just meant to allow the entirely unrepresentative citizens assembly which is being put together by a polling company which openly says it's uh, absolutely unrepresentative and because of its scale and the way it's set up is absolutely open to infiltration by interested groups and in fact maybe designed so that primarily interested groups are interested in it yeah so she she opened with um so just just uh, just for sake of clarity they're talking about article 41.2.1 and 2 so 41, uh, Article 41.2.1 says, In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, women give to the state a support uh, without which the common good cannot be achieved. And 41.2.2 says, um, I forget the exact wording, but the state will endeavour to ensure that mothers should not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in work to the neglect of their duties in the home. I think it's the... That, that's, that, that's the sense of it, actually. It's very close to the wording, I guess. And uh, basically they want to know, should that be taken out? Should be made gender neutral? Should anything be gone through it? There's been some very weird discussion about it. I remember seeing some academics stand up and say, we've got to get rid of the derogatory and inflammatory language in those paragraphs. I sort of looked at it and went, what part? It doesn't set the heart aflame and tell you to, you know, chain women to the kitchen table, does it? There, were, there was some legal opinion now, I don't know how factuous or how correct it was, that the children's allowance was originally introduced in order to in some way vindicate this particular the right in the second part of the article that they should not be required by economic necessity to work outside the home and that in the absence of this the state would no longer be required to to uh give any kind of because the children went directly to the mother didn't go to any didn't go to anybody else went directly to her so it was i always just think about that article always puzzled me was that women's women's advocates and I didn't actually utilize it more, push it more in a sense. That if there are women, and we know that there are, and we know, well, we say we know, there is a lot of polling evidence which tells us that if women had the choice, that they would prefer to stay at home in the early years of a child's development rather than have to go back to work, or to give, or they would prefer to be the primary carers of the children rather than have to, rather than going back to full-time work. But they feel they have to go, well, they have to go back because of economic necessity. And I always wondered that there wasn't more of a kind of legal push on the government to, to actually vindicate women's rights in that sense. Because the constitutional guarantee seems to be fairly, on the face of it, fairly explicit. But there you go. As I said, it's just started. But what I wanted to highlight was some of the comments made by Catherine Day what she what she told participants at the start of it but she said that um, she told the participants that the articles had come from a very different time from a very different ireland you know since then ireland has gone through very significant change opened up to the outside world taken different views on many social questions probably nothing exemplifies the changes of the past 84 years more than Article 41. I very much doubt that such an article would be acclaimed in a referendum today. It has been criticised over many years, including by Irish and international human rights organisations. And as you know, the Convention on the Constitution as long ago as 2013 basically called for amendments to the Constitution to change what we all call the Women in the Home Clause. Uh, What we want to know is whether you feel it should be kept as is, so no change to the Constitution. 
or should it be uh, deleted, taken out of the constitution, or should it be replaced by something else? Which, considering Day's job is not to get people to pick a particular option here, or it's not meant to be, doesn't scream to me, Michael, I am an independent arbiter of this process. No, Gary... Have you? I, I don't. I, I have had. I've had the good fortune to actually be at one of these efforts, and the notion that they are anything except some kind of a Potemkin. What would you call it? It's like a. a, a it's a way you've decided where, where you want to go. So, but you want to get yourself cover. You don't want to look like you're actually advocating for it. So you say, well, let's let's pretend we'll have this random group of people, and they'll talk about it, and they will be given evidence by random groups of equally balanced, impartial, and in uh, disinterested experts, and at the, at the end of it, they'll come to a reasonable a reasonable decision which will be representative more or less of the opinion of the people and then we will proceed on that basis now if anybody believes that's actually what happens in these things when i have a piece of property somewhere in the florida everglades that i would like to talk to them about buying the notion of impartiality or disinterested neutral advice it is to laugh but yes i take your point she's supposed to be basically the chair of the thing isn't she yeah and look i know it's ireland and no one gives a shit about this but considering that they, you know, these people are for some reason, consider, as I said, considering that we know there are incredible issues with this and it's no way representative and they tend to be very easy to manipulate and they tend to attract the sort of people who can very easily... It's basically a fucking focus group and anyone who's run a focus group knows that there's a number of ways you can get what you want out of it and there's a number of ways it can just go to hell. It's not even a focus group, Gray, I'll tell you what, because if you run a focus group, you're actually trying, most of the time you actually want to get, you want to find something out. Like if you were, you were, you have a, if you have a product and you want to sell it, you want to get actual information that's going to help you sell it. Most, these are, this is not a focus group, this is a focus group in the sense that if you want to, you want to say, well, this is the results we got because you want to push somebody up the management chain to do something that you like. But it's not actually, it's not, a, it's not an endeavor in gaining insight into what people actually think. Because the ex, even the experts, it's not just the, the, the way they choose the people that form the assembly itself, but it's the evidence that's presented to them, the so-called independent experts that they bring in, the balance of the thing. It's just all nonsense. And I think that a lot of people would be surprised to discover it's still in existence. Yeah, it's, it's proved to be a thing, and academics really love it. Like, they really love it. I mean... There's, what it reminds me of is, and uh, this I found really revealing, was when the Citizens' Assembly was uh, looking at abortion, there was a point during its deliberations where they had rejected some of the options. They'd gotten to the end of the process and they were being asked what they wanted to do. And they had rejected some of the options that the, uh, that the repeal side, the pro-choice side, had hoped they would take. And there was a brief period where pro-choice academics and NGO workers just unloaded on the Citizens' Assembly. Just went for it. How, you know, this was a failure of education, how this was a terrible system, how this was something for politicians, absolutely should not be given to these people. And then it turned out, as I had suspected it was going to, that they had rejected these options because they wanted to go for the more extreme options. And all that happened was people just deleted all of the social media on that and just said, well, you know, this shows what happens when people sit down 
and they really consider the issue. They come to a result we approve of, which means yeah. this is good. Whereas several hours ago, this was bad. But that didn't happen. So let's yeah, 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 yeah. let's move on from that. But um, th- this shouldn't happen. Obviously, if you're going to have something like this, you could make this representative. You could actually make this a thing. It would be larger, but it wouldn't be you know, incredibly large. It, we're, we're doing it, but we're not even bothering to do it properly. If you're going... You know, Gary, it's a, if you're going to do these things, have the decency at least to lie. Absolutely. Like, make it you, look like you're trying. Pretend like you're you're disinterested and impartial. Do that at least. You know, give us the respect of lying to us. Yeah, I mean, like, pretend. That's all we ask. Yeah, that's, you know, we don't, we don't ask much from our government, Gary. We really don't. But at least pretend. Or, you know, sack day. <laughs> yeah, Listen, before we finish up, I just want to send a question out to our listeners, because I'm curious. You know, it's we live in this isolated pandemic world, so you, we don't get to meet the same number of people that we normally would. So sometimes it's very hard to get a sense of what's happening out in the, the great big world that is Ireland today. Because there was an article in, in The Independent, Gary, and I just want to, I, I don't want to go into the article itself, but the, the headline, which is a quote from something in the article, and it slightly confused me. And I got on the phone and I had a chat with a few people, um, but haven't been able, as I say, you can't really get a sense. So maybe our, our vast literature out there can, can confirm that this is the case. The quote, the, the article, the, the headline says, a lot of people are feeling pressurised to meet with people, get on with it, and have sex in a car. This is an article about sex in the pandemic. And uh, I'm just curious. A lot of people, Gary, now that's the thing, not some people, people, a lot of people are feeling pressurised to meet with people, get on with it, and have sex in a car. Has that happened to you, Gary? Is there context here? Um, The context is that there is a lockdown. And it is affecting the nation's libido. And apparently in the past, the reaction to the plagues has been either some people would run riot in the streets and have sex in public. This is according to Tina Tassina, PhD, psychotherapist and author of Money, Sex and Kids. Or others have retreated into prayer and meditation. Now, in the pandemic, there are, there are, there are Gary, apparently apps that people can use on their mobile telephones, which will help them meet people for dates. You know, they can meet for coffee, go to the cinema. And I suppose, but in that context, apparently, a lot of people are feeling pressure. I can't help reading it again because I just like it. A lot of people are feeling pressurised to meet people, get on with it, and have sex in a car. I suppose what I get particularly is having sex in a car. Not even have sex in a field or a shed. Because I suppose the thing is, you know, because people want to be respectful of the law regarding having people come into your house, <laughs> they're meeting up with strangers and having sex in cars instead. You know, I don't think that the problem is where you have the sex, Gary, as regards the, tran- the transmission of COVID. My suspicion is having sex with someone who is probably an opportunity for transmission wherever you have it. I'm actually, I'm just looking at the, the article you mentioned now, Michael, having frantically Googled it so I could get the context that you were <laughs> denying me. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much of it. But you know the sentence where you read it and it's from an academic and you get to the end of the sentence and you, you're you just remembering that nowadays there's just so many academics, people who 200 years ago 
would have just been told, you know what, maybe go work in a bank. If you were lucky. Yeah, you, you don't... You're, you don't really need to stay here. Go go do something else with your life. So Dr. Caroline West, who's a sex and relationship expert, says, While I thought people would be more keen to make up for lost time and have casual partners, research from dating app Bumble has shown that actually over 50% of people are looking for a long-term partner and only 80% are looking for something casual. I think lockdown has made a lot of people evaluate what you're looking for in a relationship. To which I can say, if you were an academic... And you go onto like Tinder or Grinder or Bumble or whatever, and you take the amount of people saying that they're looking for a long-term commitment as actually reflective of people's actions, as opposed to perhaps a signal of some kind to potential mates, then probably shouldn't be an academic studying the um, studying there. Who is the anthropologist, Michael? who got terribly bamboozled by that entire civilization? Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead. Growing up in Samoa, or Sex in the Tropian Islands. Yes. <laughs> now, in fairness, it was everybody, everybody was bamboozled. There was a, it was a good one. Margaret Mead was a, a student of the, the, when the great early anthropologist Malinowski. And Malinowski uh, disagreed deeply with Freud. Freud had developed his various sexual theories, including, say, the Oedipus complex, the Electra complex, and Malinowski believed that these were culturally conditioned, that these, these might be true maybe in bourgeois European context, but the, this wasn't true in other places. So he sent his, his, his protege off uh, to, I think it was Samoa, growing up in Samoa, and then there was another great one, as I say, was Sex in the Tropian Islands. Anyway, she, she immersed herself. What's the word? Embedded? Is that it? Embedded? With uh, the into the into the community and discovered this wonderful society where everybody was just sexually liberated and people, were, you know, you could women could have sex with young young women have sex with young men just for basically recreational purposes and there was no pressure on marriage and all this kind of stuff and it was a huge hit it still is what nobody was told was actually uh, Margaret apparently was at the end of the night would be picked up by a boat and then go back out and uh, back out to the US battleship, which is sitting in the bay, uh, which was where she actually lived. And when many, many years later, another anthropologist went back out to meet the people that Margaret Mead had interviewed, she met these, <laughs> this bunch of old ladies. Now, again, I don't know if this is, this is true, but I was, I, I was told by an anthropologist this was true, maybe, unless they had a, their own axe to grind, but I, I think it's widely believed. And they cackled with laughter and said, oh, yeah, do you remember the American? We stuffed her with stories. She was mad about sex. She always on about sex, sex, sex. And they just basically stuffed her. In a way, Gary, I could absolutely say if you had an anthropologist appearing in, say, in, in West Kerry to study the mating practices of West Kerry, right? And they went into the couple of the local pubs to get information. Can you imagine the stories that the people would tell her? about the mating practices. And she would write it all down and go back to Yale and publish a book and have it hailed as an example of the, the last remnants of sexual mating, sexual practices in a pre-modern culture in Europe. And people in Kerry would read it and roar with laughter. And I think that's pretty well what happened with Margaret Mead, allegedly. But I, I just want to ask the people out there if it's true, if, if, there are lots, if there are a lot of our listeners who have felt pressurised to meet with people and have sex with cars. Because I'd just like to say to you, you know, don't feel pressurised. There's a basic rule with this kind of thing, Gary. 
If it's not an estate and the back seats don't go down, don't do it. Modern compact cars, you like your your little your micro cars, unless you're very young and very nimble, you have a serious injury risk. I mean, at the very least, at the very least, muscular injury, possibly even skeletal. It's not worth it. Little bit of a medical advice there, Gary, which we should immediately refute for the purposes of legal protection. Don't take anything we say as medical advice. I, I was going to make a joke about the ICGP, but then I thought, no, they would sue me. Yeah, you know what, Gary, you've been incredibly restrained tonight. I think it might. I'm, I'm, I'm mellowing out in my old age, Michael. You know, maybe, 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 maybe the COVID is 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 aging you rapidly. It's like it, it's a kind of a what was that Robin Williams film? In reverse, Benjamin Button. You're Benjamin Buttoning, morally. Morally, no, no, I'm I'm still as functionally amoral as ever. I'm just a bit mellower about it. Yeah, listen, that's enough dirty talk for a Sunday, I suppose. So we should leave it there. <laughs> Is functional amorality the opposite of functional altruism? Come back to me in five or six months, and on that one, I'll give you an answer. <laughs> we'll ask Jared Casey about that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll be back on Wednesday. Have, have has the Lord decided to leave us to, in this this world? But until then, mind yourselves. All the best.